0: Right, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE and welcome to this Forum of European Philosophy event in the se- series on European Questions, Turkish Angles. I'm Simon ben and I'm the director of the Forum of for European Philosophy. Uh, these events are jointly organised with the LSE Chair in Contemporary Turkish Studies. Uh, and I would like to say the Chair is sitting here in the person of its person. And um, she get public. Now, just before we begin, I, uh, given that our um, theme today seems rather timely, um, I want to send us back a little bit into the 1780s and some remarks made by the philosopher Immanuel Kant in an essay called Sketch for a Universal History from a Cosmopolitan Perspective. And in this Essay with a rather long title. Um, he reflects on all the wars going on in Europe at that time and probably for quite a long time before then. Uh, these wars, he noted, caused this unbelievable sovereign debt, and it was unsustainable in his view. And he thought that these European nations with growing sovereign debts were going to become increasingly interested in peace. Otherwise, they would never be able to uh, sustain themselves as national economies. And he saw coming, then, in the 1780s, what he called a great political body of the future <coughs> without precedent in the past. Well, we're living in a present where that great political body has arisen. And he Kant, had considered two ways in which it might uh, present itself one of which he thought was a completely rational step and the completely rational step given that what we were aiming for was peace <coughs> was uh, a supranational state but he rejects this and he rejects this most rational step for two reasons first he thought due to the size of the thing it would be very hard to administer in, uh, in a way that would suit uh, a, a a a Republican democracy, uh, and he, he said that it could only result in a sort of soulless despotism and the graveyard of freedom. But the second reason he rejected it was that it is not the will of the nations. So in place of the positive proposal for a supranational state, he suggests instead a negative substitute, which he called a peaceful federation of states, in which the power of the great political body of the future is not itself that of a state. So we have this idea of something coming in Europe, on our continent, as he puts it, this great political body of the future which shouldn't take the form of a new supranational state, he said, because it is not the will of the nations. Now, I often find that that, um, that proposition, that, that way of putting it, not the will of the nations, quite difficult to sort of dig into, not least because you could, he could have said, perhaps more straightforwardly, it's not the will of the government, or the governments, or it's not the will of the people, or the peoples, and so on, but he says, he said, no, it's not the will of the nations. So what are these nations? What is the unity of their will, and the unity of the federation that they will freely form? Well, these may or may not be questions <laughs> that we'll discuss this evening, but we've brought together three people who have thought hard about national identities, national unities, supranational unities and of course as befits our event here a Turkish angle now we're going to go uh, in uh, no, no order that is represented by this table because <laughs> we're going to have uh, Francis Jacobs first and then John Bruley second and then Umut uz currently third uh, the uh, Turkish angle normally comes in at the end and so uh, that, it's not the not sort a of position of excellence or not excellence, <laughs> it's just the way it goes <laughs> at these events. So they'll we'll all get their chance to say something from their own point of view, uh, whatever they want, in fact, uh, uninterrupted for uh, no more than 15 minutes. And um, then after that, uh, we'll try and uh, get some sort of conversation going between them. I'll probably prompt them with a question. And then after that, I'll open it to you uh, to uh, have your. Questions and contributions to them. But first, delighted to welcome Francis Jacobs. Please, please,
1: thank you very much. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Um, a long, a very long time ago, I taught law and jurisprudence at the London School of Economics. It's always good to be back, and I'm glad, in a way, to be going first because although that exposes me to the <laughs> comments of those who come after, I think in some ways it's quite appropriate. I'm looking at a very specific aspect of the subject. <laughs> which is looking at this issue from the point of view of European law, which happens to be my particular field. I think also I'm going to make a few historical remarks which may help to set the scene, and my remarks will be of a rather more general character, perhaps, than those who speak after me, Uh, and I think what I say will certainly be more basic uh, in many ways. So I'm glad to be going first as well. I want to look at it from the point of view of Turkey and the European Union, going back briefly to the beginning, which I think was around 50 years ago when Turkey was partner with the European Economic Community under the Association Agreement of 1963, which interestingly enough, even in those days, contemplated future accession to the European Community by Turkey. And I think, although it may seem surprising that as long ago as that time the um, accession of Turkey was, was contemplated um, I think if you look at it in the perspective of that time it's not altogether surprising the, the community as it then existed in the early 60s um, there was um, a small body of six member states but very keen to expand and that idea that all European nations which wanted to join in this great post-Kantian uh, endeavour uh, were welcome to do so um, was I think more than simply uh, rhetoric. Indeed, there was a problem for the European community in those days in that there were very <coughs> few other countries around that could join the European community. Uh, the United Kingdom had taken the step of preempting the position of seven other European countries as a kind of uh, countermeasure to the European community by persuading them to join the European Free Trade Association. And most of the other countries in Europe at that time were certainly not free to join the European community because they were firmly ensconced behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, Those that remained on the western side, which were not members of EFTA or of the European community already, were countries that, like Spain and Portugal, were not free for other reasons to join the European community. So it was interesting that, um, in fact, the only countries then being considered for membership were an interesting pair. They were Greece and Turkey. Both of them had joined the Council of Europe almost at the beginning in 1949, very soon after the founding member states of the Council of Europe, and that made it clear that that Turkey as well as Greece was firmly considered as a European state. Turkey was indeed perhaps at that time no less European than Greece. At that time also we must bear in mind that the aims of the European community were primarily economic and they remained economic for a long time after even though they had a a more distant political goal. So it may have seemed not at all unreasonable that if Turkey could take part in a customs union with the European community it should be considered for eventual membership. There were advantages of course also for the the European market, for trade uh, and possibly also for Uh, access to the Turkish labor force. In so far as political considerations were relevant at that time it was, I suppose, uh, apparent that Turkey had a key political and strategic role uh, both as one of the most powerful players in the Middle East as it still is uh, and perhaps also as a bridge in some way between the Middle East and Europe. So we have, from that time, the prospect of Turkish uh, membership uh, of the European community. But of course, there could be a question whether that commitment, as it seemed to be at the time, is still relevant today, because even under international law, there is a notion that obligations have to be considered in the light of changing circumstances, and if the circumstances have changed fundamentally, the obligation may be reconsidered. And there certainly have been changes of circumstances since that day in terms of the development of the European Union, which cannot be considered as simply the successor in law to the European community of 50 years ago. And indeed, of course, and I won't go into that aspect either, there have been fundamental changes in Turkey too. So the question whether Turkey now should be a member of the European Union is not simply a transposition of the situation as it was 50 years ago. At one time, I think, Turkish accession might have been seen as, to some extent, guaranteeing Turkey's Western orientation, as it was then seen against Islamic fundamentalism. But although the European Union was willing to go to the fullest extent in economic relations with Turkey, there was a view from time to time that the increasing demands of the European Union For reform and further democratization were seen as not being met. There were periods of advance interspersed with what were seen as standstill periods or even periods of retreat. At one stage, it seemed that Turkey was even excluded from accession from the list of candidates for membership of the European Union, and in response, rather cut off relations with the European Union on key issues and turned its back on Europe. (coughs) But it's not for me to envisage the uh, content of that political metamorphosis or indeed the way in which it might evolve. What I want to say in the context of present-day concerns about Turkish membership of the European Union is that I think that today, more clearly than before, totally divergent views on the European Union itself have Emerged. There is, if you can categorize it very crudely, the inclusive view of the European Union, according to which the adherents consider that Turkish accession is an opportunity without precedent for cultural enrichment, for reconciliation between civilizations, for opening up the relig- religious, cultural, and ethnic barriers that still exist. and the more exclusive view of the European Union, which has concerns about the effect of Turkish accession on what are regarded as separate European values and on the functioning of the European Union. So there is this debate at the moment, I think, about the European Union itself. How far is it still pressing for union in every dimension and how far is it now more concerned with recognising and indeed promoting diversity of values. I would like just to to, um, give you briefly in conclusion my own view on this question um, in very basic terms. It seems to me that um, in general there has to be some kind of demarcation line between those areas where unity is necessary and those areas where diversity can be accepted or even welcomed. I would like to take as my example a, a topic with which I'm often very much concerned the topic of what is known as the rule of law the, the rule of law is a very difficult concept to define but one of the ingredients of it as it seems to me which is quite central is the notion of that there are certain legal guarantees which are effective in any society and they are essentially you can boil it down to I think very crudely perhaps They are essentially the idea that, and this may not be totally um, welcome in an institution which is concerned with political reality rather than legal aspirations, they are a society in which the political authorities are subject to control by the law, where they act in accordance with the law, where the courts are independent and impartial, where the process of administration is transparent, where, so far as possible, there are no threats to proper administration, either from maladministration or from corruption or other such forces. Those are, it seems to me, basic values of any European society, which have to be respected anywhere. Whereas in relation to other values, we may well tolerate, or as I suggest, even welcome diversity. In that respect, there's a a fundamental distinction I think which is very rarely drawn between the rule of law and human rights some people have said some very um, distinguished people have said that the rule of law incorporates human rights but I think a moment's consideration shows that that is not so at large if you're thinking about the right to respect for family life and the notion of family life or if you're thinking of freedom of religion you, you may want to have some guarantees of those rights in any society but what those guarantees consist in, the substance of those rights, will vary from one society to another and must, I think, be allowed to vary. So there must be some recognition of diversity in the way that those fundamental rights operate. In relation to the rule of law, there is no scope for such diversity. I cannot say one society m- may have a system of independent and impartial courts, but another society is allowed to have courts which are partial. So I think there is a basic distinction and it seems to me that that in a way underlines much of the debate or should underline much of the debate in the European Union today on union and on diversity. It seems to me that we have, in Europe, failed to draw the line in the right place and I'm not sure that the Lisbon Treaty does not make the damage more serious because it brings within the scope of the Treaty many aspects of law which it, will be, it might be very difficult to, to unify for example large areas of private civil law large areas of criminal law under the notion of a policy of freedom, security and justice making great areas of the law subject to definitive rulings by the court of justice I think that unification of law is very valuable where it's necessary to achieve specific purposes, it was invaluable to achieve the single European market, but it's far from clear that we need in Europe a single criminal law or a single civil law in every aspect of our lives. And it seems not only is this going to be an extremely difficult exercise to pursue, but it's also one which will actually prove rather divisive. It will prove unpopular, it will meet hostility, it will meet resistance. So I think that quest for greater unity may, in the end, provoke divisiveness. So my uh, conclusion, and I've just kept within my 15 minutes, I think, my conclusion is that we should keep the requirements of a unified Europe to the minimum which is necessary. We should allow, in relation to other areas, that freedom. I would not even say subsidiarity, because subsidiarity suggests it's in some way a kind of gift from the centre it is something which should not be regarded as a gift from the centre, but as an essential part of the national heritage of each of the European member states. So I say those words, not with any specific reference now to Turkey, but simply in relation to the way I see the debate in Europe going, because it's not just a debate for Turkey, it is a debate for the whole of the European Union as to how it wants to develop, and which has implications for how the European Union should expand in the future.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Kant would have enjoyed that very much. I think too, but certainly Kantian you. John, your Well, thanks very much for the invitation. Um, I should stress from the, the beginning that I'm an historian and I'm not an historian of Turkey. Um, uh, and so my remarks are going to be more about a broader kind of historical background (laughs) in which I try to fit Turkey into a broader set of uh, considerations and I go way back, way back before 1963. Recently there was uh, one of the things that I've now learnt now I've moved to a politics department from a history department there was a large N study (laughs) which sought to correlate nation-state formation with many, many different things, and I'm pleased to say failed to do so. The only uh, thing it it could say was that the only discernible pattern it could locate after running all these uh, regressions was that the success of nationalist projects is determined by the constellation of power relating nationalist movements and factions to imperial centres, ancient regimes or other factions of the ruling elites. And that fits in with my argument that nation-state formation happens in waves. Um, It doesn't happen in single nation-state formations, there are a few exceptions, but most nation-state formations happen in waves and those waves are associated with large-scale violence, war and revolution. And in Europe, the most important wave of this kind, so far as nation-state formation is concerned, was after The First World War. It was linked to the breakdown of three empires and one powerful nation-state following military and revolutionary violence and defeat. The formation of the Turkish nation-state is part of that wave. In other words from the very origins of the Turkish nation-state it is part of a European process of nation-state formation. I think we need to see the subsequent history of this state in the light of that broader European geopolitical reality rather than supposed Turkish peculiarities. The problem is that once nation-states were formed, the regimes and the historians who serve those regimes insist on emphasising the peculiarities. And especially when this is practised by authoritarian nationalist government for almost a century, it produces a history which makes the nation-state, the national spirit, the moving force behind the formation of the nation-state, rather than the other way around. So what I want to do in my few remarks is to reverse this and try to think of Turkish nation-state formation as part of a general process and what that (coughs) means for our understanding of Turkish history. This involves comparison. First of all, going back to that First World War, it's interesting to compare the breakdown of the two multinational empires that were irretrievably destroyed, the Ottoman and the Habsburg empires. In certain respects they were similar, they were multinational with dominant nationalities and subordinate nationalities. They were both pretty militarily functional, particularly the Ottoman Empire, to the end of the war, and minority nationalisms within the territories they controlled at the time of war, did not seem to pose a mortal or direct threat to their existence. We can't say these states were about to break up into national constituent units but for the experience of war. But they were different in that the Ottoman Empire had long been fighting wars and losing territory, particularly in the Balkans and then North Africa, to a combination of separatist movements and the intervention of other powers. They're also different in that the minority nationalisms of the Habsburg Empire had long developed cultural movements and elaborate ideologies before turning to politics, whereas in the Ottoman Empire it was the politics which dominated and the cultural nationalism was much more primitive and less developed, in many ways in fact borrowing from counterpart nationalisms in the Habsburg Empire. This also applied to the responses of state elites. The German and Hungarian state elites had a long developed sense of national argument. Whereas the elites in the Ottoman Empire shift extremely rapidly and unstably between Ottomanism, Islamism, Pan-Turkism, and what I'll call, for want of a better name, Territorial Turkism. But more important than this was that of the three defeated dynastic empires as the Romanov as well the only one whose core territory and elements of its existing state elites remained in power was the Ottoman-Turkish case the German elite of the western half of the Habsburg Empire was removed from power by the much greater role that Vienna and the urban working class and socialism played in truncated Austria the 1917 revolutions of course swept aside completely the pre-1917 Romanov state elites The nearest equivalent to the Ottoman Turks is possibly the Hungarian elite, but again they were now part of a whole empire that had collapsed. Arguably the very territorial stability of the Habsburg Empire up to 1918 made its core imperial elites incapable of adapting to sudden state collapse in the way that the Ottoman state elites were capable of adapting to a slower state collapse. All the other new states set up after the First World War, such as Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Romania and Poland, constituted either by wholly new state elites, in words people who would never exercised state power before, or sometimes an uneasy yoking together, as in the case of Yugoslavia, <coughs> Serb state elites with other non-state elites. Another key point was that this fairly new and primitive Turkism had two massive advantages over other, other national movements. First, its dominant elite, naturally based in the period of war and the army officer corps had experience in wielding political and military power. Once it could sweep aside periphery elites, such as those of the Arabic-speaking provinces, or the imperial elites still hankering after Ottomanism or Islamism, it had pretty much unchallenged authority in the core territory of Anatolia. Second, and linked to this, the territory that he ruled over had what one might call a complete social structure. That is to say, it didn't have to construct new elites, although to some extent the way in which uh, minority elites of Armenians and Jews and others were swept aside, did uh, uh, call for some social change. Nation building, unlike in the new states of the Habsburg Empire, didn't call for the production of business, professional, state administrative and military elites, even if this elite was highly corrupt and inefficient due to the way in which non-Turkish bourgeois elements had been purged. I think it was this which helps us understand the effective military performance of the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, and then of the new (coughs) Turkish centre which followed in the war subsequent to the First World War against Greece, but also against significant Western intervention. Just as success in the Civil War in Russia between one thousand nine hundred and seventeen and twenty one hardened and institutionalized Bolshevik Russia, so did success in this war work in the same way in turkey and This is what I call a moment of crystallization. It seems to me that that crystallization in that geopolitical transformation after the First world War remains vital to an understanding any understanding of subsequent Turkish history. First, it was cemented by territorial continuity and the avoidance of involvement in the Second World War. Second, of course, it meant that the consolidation of the nation-state, in this case, was centred on the secularist nationalism of the army leadership personified in Ataturk. Of course, many elements have changed in recent decades and others more ineligible particularly Umut of contemporary Turkey can talk about that. But one thing that does strike me as peculiar is that in many ways, Turkey is more continuous from that First World War experience than any of the other new nation-states that were formed in that period. Because those other new nation-states fell successively under fascist and then communist rule. And once the Soviet Union had collapsed, it seemed to me it was easy for those states to see in national sovereignty a true danger to their own independence. It was quite easy to swap the uh, hateful rule of either Berlin or Moscow for the benign rule of Brussels. Although, Of course in the present sovereign debt crisis that rule from Brussels doesn't look quite as benign as it did <laughs> two or three years ago. Whereas Turkey, of course, has remained amazingly territorially and to some extent institutionally continuous since it was formed in the period immediately after the First World War. So. All I want to conclude, and like any story, and I'm much happier talking about the past than making any comments about the present or engaging in near-future guesswork. What I want to claim is that the Turkish nation-state is one specific manifestation of the main wave of European nation-state formation, which took place and crystallised after the First World War. And even the names of the states, even though they underwent fascist and then communist domination, have remained the same in Central Europe. In that sense, it's rather puzzling to listen to a debate about whether Turkey should join Europe or not. The European nation-states, as it was formed, had Turkey as very much part and parcel of that process. And it was the general processes, not the processes that were peculiar to do with Islam, I would argue, or any kind of Turkish national myth-making. It was the general character of this process that's most important. If the argument about the European membership of Turkey is couched in terms of, for example, possibly world religions, where implicitly Europe means Christendom, sometimes even just Latin Christendom, it might make some sense. But if it's about a Europe of nation-states, which was the product of a particular massive geopolitical wave of transformation, it makes no sense whatsoever. Thank you.
3: Well, uh, thank you Simon and Sheket for inviting me as well. Um, well, we cheated with John a little bit. So we ex- exchanged our papers beforehand. So I will pick up exactly where he left off. Uh, and since I'm ni- neither a historian nor an international lawyer, I think I can easily touch upon some of the more current discussions in about Europe and Turkey. Now, uh, the formation of the Turkish nation-, nation state, as John argued, was indeed an outcome of, and perhaps a reaction to, the larger process of nation-building in Europe. And as such, it inherited all the vices of its predecessors, and first and foremost, obviously, the ideology of nationalism, which triggered and also legitimized the process. So I'm not going to dwell on, on the, the you know huge debate over the definition of nationalism here, but what matters for, the, for my talk today is nationalism's largely uh, insatiable quest for homogeneity, or its ontological insecurity vis-a-vis difference in pluralism. So I will say a few words on nationalism and its others in Turkey in the next uh, 10 minutes or so, which will also help me to bring the discussion to the present, to today, uh, and address uh, very briefly two European questions, not necessarily from a Turkish but also uh, I think a more global or European uh, angle, namely the debate on the death of multiculturalism and Turkey's membership of the EU. Now, I've chosen a recent example to give you uh, uh, an idea about Turkey's relationship with its minorities. Um, in its report on the implementation of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, Turkey, and this, this report was submitted in 2008, uh, the, 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 the all too familiar thesis that citizenship in Turkey is defined on the basis of a legal bond to the state, in line with Article 66 of the current constitution, 1982 constitution which stipulates that everybody, everyone bound to the Turkish state through the bond of citizenship is a Turk. Uh, the term Turk does not have any racial or ethnic connotations, the, rep- the report hastens to add, but reflects the national identity of all citizens in, sur- in Turkey, irrespective of their origins. I quote from the report, The state system is based on the principle of constitutional territorial nationalism, territorial Turkism maybe. Turkish nation is not a juxtaposition of communities or groups. It is composed of citizens who are equal before the law, irrespective of their origins in terms of language, race, color, ethnicity, religion, or any other such particularity. This does not mean, of course, that there are no minorities in Turkey, and under the Turkish constitutional system, we are told in the report, the term minorities refers only to And I quote, groups of persons defined and recognized as such on the basis of multilateral or bilateral instruments to which Turkey is party. Now, ironically, there is only one such instrument Turkey recognizes, the Lausanne Peace Treaty of 1923, uh, which restricts the use of the term minority to non-Muslim citizens of the republic, namely the Greeks, Jews and the Armenians. Now, not much historical acrobatics is necessary to figure out what this this particular understanding entailed for various minorities, non-Muslim or Muslim alike, who were not considered to be, and in most cases, who did not consider themselves to be members of the would-be nation. Extermination, deportation, various policies of assimilation, demographic and economic engineering. Uh, just to give you an example, and this is the most timely example, I guess, uh, since we 're still going through this uh, huge problem, which would probably bring down uh, we, we, we were just discussing with Shekh before coming here I mean the, the, which will determine the fate of the current government, the case of the Kurds who have been subject to systematic oppression of their distinct identities throughout republican history and Some of the policies that I just listed, enumerated that have specifically targeted the Kurds, who the Kemalist regime believed were more susceptible prone to assimilation than non-Muslims included, for instance, the Eastern Reform Plan of, of 1925, which called for the prohibition of the public use of Kurdish in areas with mixed Turkish and Kurdish populations, deportation of families, which were perceived to pose a security risk to Western Turkey, um, the law of settlement for instance of 1934 which authorized the settlement of Caucasian and Balkan immigrants to traditionally Kurdish areas or the law concerning uh, uh, Tunceli province which changed the name of the Kurdish province of Darsim to T- Tunceli after a bloody actually attack on Darsim. The pressure on the Kurds reached a new height after the military coup of 1980. And all signs of a separate Kurdish identity were prohibited by the junta, uh, including the Kurdish language, which was banned by the infamous law of uh, law number twenty nine thirty two of nineteen eighty three, which remained in force for uh, until nineteen ninety one. And the displacement of large numbers of civilians and the burning of Kurdish villages became common practice in this period as part of the struggle with the PKK. Now, as John pointed out in his intervention. Many elements of nationalism in Turkey have changed in the last decade, in particular its uh, secularist tone, but one element has remained constant, and that is the quest for homogeneity and the systematic denial of ethnic, religious, and linguistic diversity. In the meantime, however, Europe, which is the perennial model of republican modernizers, has also changed. Uh, suffering today in the clutches of an economic meltdown, which is, in my view, the manifestation of a more general normative crisis or a crisis of values of which nationalism is the main catalyst. And this is uh, what uh, Sir Jacobs talked about, you know, the unity, the tension between unity and diversity, two different versions of European Union, the understanding of European Union. Uh, and I think, and that's my argument, uh, that Europe is no longer the embodiment of the ideals and values of freedom, equality, justice, not last but not the least pluralism, but one which rejects multiculturalism, both as practice and ideology. So I do think that actually Europe at the moment seems to have made a choice. Uh, where nationalism, a Europe where nationalism has become more visible and legitimate, embraced not only by the far-right, radical right, but by also by mainstream political actors and, and the population at large. And just remember the, the, the recent condemnations of Merkel, David Cameron, or the reaction of some political figures to, to Oslo shootings, who have openly claimed that they were, not, uh, they were sympathetic to the motivations of Anders Breivik, Andres if not to his acts. And a Europe where nationalism has taken on an unabashedly anti-immigration Islamophobic character, This last point is also evidenced by a recent survey, speaking of large and surveys, examining uh, attitudes among online supporters of far-right parties carried out by the British think-tank Demos. And that that was uh, reported a couple of days ago, actually. Based on data collected from more than 10,000 Facebook followers of 14 parties and street organizations in 11 countries, the study shows that, and I quote from the from the study, many join or support populist and movements because they fear that immigration and multiculturalism are destroying national and sometimes European values and, and culture. And that, I quote again, many find common cause in opposing a perceived Islamification of secular liberal and Christian societies. So this shows that many elements of nationalism have changed in Europe as well. Uh, since it no longer makes sense to distinguish everyday taken for granted forms of nationalism from its more visible and (coughs) aggressive expressions. So in in many ways yesterday's banal nationalism, to use Michael Billig's term, is today blatantly exclusivist and populist. What does this imply for Turkey's European vocation? First, that Turkey will never become a member of the EU since the argument is, and will always be, couched in terms of word, religions or culture, not in terms of geopolitics. Second, an EU plagued by an economic and, as I argued, a more general normative crisis is no longer attractive to a Turkey, which is enjoying its newfound role as a regional soft power and hailed by many as a model to the Middle East. And I'm sure some of you will have thousands of things to say about these things. (laughs) However, overblown this might in reality be. But third, and this is in my final point, the picture that emerges from all this is alarming. A Europe and Turkey where nationalism rides roughshod over everything else is certainly not one that befits the 21st century, in particular for immigrants and those minorities who have so far been the losers of the nation building game. Thank you. may
0: to pick up on something from moment's um, uh, presentation, but put it a little bit to, to Francis. Um, there, was dis- there was a description of nation and national identities having what he called an insatiable quest for homogeneity. Mm. and uh, within a nation this would mean that there's a sort of intolerance towards certain forms of diversity. Now, it wasn't the unity and diversity of a nation that you were talking about. You were talk- the level of homogeneity that you were focusing on would be between possible members of a, a European Union, where where you were insisting on a commitment to the rule of law, but with a space for diversity amongst social uh, between societies who are part of that union. Do you think that the um, societies that you were thinking of there who might be different amongst themselves would you agree with this idea of them also having inside themselves some kind of drive towards uh, homogeneity or or do you think that the societies you look at um, also retain some respect for diversity
1: well um, I I may be looking at this situation with rather spectacles but I I find it difficult to recognize this description of Europe as developing this passion for homogeneity. It seems to me that the reverse is the case. Um, and from the beginning, of course, the European community encouraged migration, uh, the free movement of workers, the free movement of <coughs> providers of services and professionals. And there was a development uh, in that direction. And, of course, m- many, many people have benefited enormously from that. Uh, many students, as we know, have benefited enormously from spending a year of their studies in another European member state. Uh, I, I think that process has reached the stage where it is um, irreversible. We, we have um, large minorities in, in the member states, not only from third countries, but from other member states of the European Union. We have the notion that everyone has the same rights wherever they live in the European Union. We have the notion even of European citizenship. So. I find it difficult to see this um, resistance and this, this emphasis on homogeneity other than in terms of um, a reaction by extremist political parties, which of course will for time, from time to time, attract a certain amount of popular assent. But I don't see that that can be the basis for the future of the European Union or indeed for most other parts of the world where developments to some extent similar have been Taking place, so that that would be my uh, reply on yeah. that question. I'd, there are more things I'd like to say, but I better stop.
0: Yeah, uh, John, if you don't mind, putting something similar to you, then, then let's just hold on to this distinction between homogeneity and diversity, and, uh, uh, and that distinction as it operates both at the, na- at the level of a nation and perhaps also at a supranational level in the European Union. Um, in in the studies you've looked at on. Uh, the history of Europe's nation states. Would you also dissent or affirm this idea of this quest for, a, uh, for homo- homogeneity?
2: Well, again, I mean, and I started a discussion earlier, and I, 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 I think his reading is too dark. Um, for, but for a number of historical reasons. I mean, first of all, I did say that it seems to me. The where Turkey is distinct from the other new nation-states of Central Europe is that it was structured by the post-First World War, but it wasn't deeply affected by the Second World War. And I think what the period of fascist and then-communist domination, particularly fascist domination, did was, to some extent, I mean, if you take a pessimistic view of matters, solve certain problems of ethnic simply, for example, Poland was not an ethnically homogenous state um, at the beginning of the 20th century, but by the end of the Second World War uh, it was. Um, So the first thing is, I think, that the the issue of who against whom this nationalism is directed differs very much. Anti-immigration, xenophobic populism, is one kind of thing. Um, Nationalism about homogenising settled Parts of the population, Kurds for example, is another kind of thing. Uh, A second thing I think that makes this different from some of the ethno nationalisms of an earlier period is it's not about the formation of new states and it's certainly not about the expansion of states. Uh, These are very internalist. Third thing I would say is it seems to me that in the case of many of the Central European states, it's a very fluctuating kind of thing that in many ways, I mean, I think the two points go together is that the the free movement of labour generates also some negative responses, particularly at times of economic downturn. The interesting thing is that in a lot of Western European countries, it seems to me very often the object of this xenophobic populism changes rapidly according to the particular circumstances. You know, there are, there's evidence that sometimes, for example, um, xenophobic populism had shifted from settled populations from the Caribbean and South Asia towards East Europeans. And in a way, in a cynical way, it seems to me a wavering or fluctuating or inconsistent sort of nationalism is not to be so feared as a steady, ideologically clear kind of nationalism like that of an elaborate fascist ideology. So, So to that extent, I, I, w- I would actually say, I think, in a sense, Turkey perhaps almost still belongs to an older era because the Second World War experience and the fascist and communist domination experiences is not something that it has gone through in the same way as much of Central Europe has gone through.
0: Well, Can could, could I like, put these two points back to you then? Is there, is there a, a sense that for you there is no nation or no sort of stable sense of a nation without some kind of problematic ethno or cultural nationalism. Do these things just go together for you? So if one breaks down, if if in some territorial region a sort of uh, the right wing xenophobic populism diminishes, is that a kind of diminishing of a nation for you? I mean, do they have to go together? Or can you have something like Europe's nation states without this sort of uh, uh, this uh, a sort of domination of the discussion of it by right-wing
3: nationalism? Well, I think my opinion does not matter that much, because the answer to your question would be that, uh, for me, obviously, uh, the nation or any kind of society would go without the ideology which founded it, I guess, you know, and we could, you know, uh, imagine all sorts of... Uh, collectivities without uh, nationalism all, or, or other ideologies but the point is you know, that, that would be the view of the nationalists themselves that the, the nation cannot exist without nationalism and that is why I, I guess uh, um, my view then I mean uh, it's, uh, it's practically very problematic and I, I mean I was looking at the picture actually from both sides not only from the European side but also from the Turkish side which is now rediscovering Uh, It's kind of nationalism, but couching it in a different term, obviously, but still, you know, um, and that's where actually I think I would uh, have my reply to John. And, And the nationalism's exclusions do change. Uh, the other does change. I mean, it was the communism in the past, Polish plumbers at some point, and today it's the Muslims, and who knows what will be next. But the point that the structure of nationalism does not change. I mean, it is always boi- based on some sort of exclusion. And in that sense, the picture that fr- uh, Sir Jacob's portrait is the one that I would like to see, uh, a rosy Europe. But I, I, I am afraid that the European Union is itself uh not by its founding fathers but the way in which it is evolving unfortunately the way i see it is becoming a, a nation state writ large so as a grand kind of a nation state in which there are obviously winners and losers uh, others and versus you know us versus them uh so yes we should be able uh, and since we're what uh, in a, a philosophy forum we should be able to think and continue imagining other forms of belonging obviously uh, and in that sense I'm not losing that is why I touched on the issue, I'm not losing my hope in, hopes in multiculturalism there might be problems with the ways in which it was implemented
2: I mean, it
0: would certainly be But certainly the, the point case <coughs> that, that a lot of people are arguing at the moment for uh, a, a stronger political union in Europe would claim that um, within such a body there would be very real and lively, vibrant cultural differences, that it wouldn't be a kind of uh, a, um, an insatiable quest, quest for homogeneity across Europe. Certainly it would seem very hard to imagine that that could possibly be the upshot
3: well I mean I don't want to uh, uh, dominate the debate but I think that's the ideal, not the practice I mean because the problem with nationalism is not that I mean it's, it's precisely that you know the relationship between politics and culture so can you have a political union without having a cultural unity now my answer would be obviously uh, but for a nationalist would that be possible or for a politician would that be possible in a, in a, in a you know in, a, in, t- in today's world where both the right and the left has been embracing. I mean, even this new debate about the blue labor, you know, it's talking about social redistribution, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera, then family values, social cohesion, you know, marrying uh, solidarity with, you know, belonging and all of these things. So I think, yeah, philosophically, the answer to your question is yes, but in practice. okay. So do I think.
0: think let it, uh, John, do you think that there's uh, an opportunity for a European nationalism, as it were, in a kind of a supermodel?
2: to emerge in Europe? Well, I emphasise that nation-state formations are linked to major waves of large-scale violence, shattering (coughs) violence. Um, I don't see any other way in which state systems and sentiments of belonging can be rapidly changed. And as I don't want to see (laughs) large-scale, Violence and shattering. I don't see anything much more than muddling along with the crystallisation that we've got at the moment. Um, you know, the idea that somehow you know, politicians always want to pretend that there's some peaceful way they can engineer huge changes in senses of loyalty and political cultures. Historically, I think the record says that's rather optimistic. Yeah, Francis, on
0: that one. The, the, the potential for a, a sort of non-diversity at the European level.
1: For non-diversity, I don't yeah. think there's any potential for non-diversity because I think we're, we're all far too diverse. It's too late. It's too late to have um, <laughs> homogeneity.
0: Right. Um, and then, now, does that then exclude some form of, as it were, quasi-nation form at the European level?
1: Yes, I confess I'm not too um, concerned either about the notion of um, nation state formation at European level because I'm convinced that the existing nation states will remain the focus for a very long time. They will remain the focus of um, people's first allegiance and the like. Um, But it seems to me that that is not incompatible, (coughs) that's not in any way incompatible with that tolerance and with acceptance of people of other, uh, from other cultures and from other <coughs> faiths. Just as it is the case, it, it happens to be the case in England, of course there have been huge problems from time to time of, of religious conflict. Huge problems of religious conflict. But nonetheless, we live in a society where there is generally from day to day tolerance of people from different cultures and, and different faiths. So I don't don't so. I don't see this uh, as a fundamental clash with the re-emergence of um, nationalism. Um, And I think that, um, I certainly think the The European Union may have moved in in the wrong direction. I agree with John on that. It's moved too far in certain directions. It's not far enough in others. Although, of course, it's enormously difficult to steer such an organism in in what seems to us the the right direction. But I do think that the European Union is actually (laughs) still still now a force for greater. Acceptance and greater tolerance for
0: values. Right. I'm mean, thinking back now to Kant's point in the 1780s it is not the will of the nations for there to be a mm-hmm. supranational state. <coughs> and I'm often reflecting on that assertion, thought, well, that's the sort of thing that surely could change. You could imagine, well, what if it, tomorrow it was the will of the nations? But I think part of what you're saying, John, is that that kind of transformation certainly doesn't happen overnight and doesn't happen in, in ways without incredible. Cool.
2: Violence and destruction. I just came. I mean, so to do some of them here. I just came from a class in the course on nationalism, and we were talking about Renan and Ernst Renan's uh, dictum that the nation is a twenty-four-hour-day plebiscite which kind of conveys the notion that it's will. But actually, Renan said it's a plebiscite that's conducted on the basis of common memories and common forgettings, um, and that doesn't disappear from one day to the next. Unless unless it's... But, but I don't want to be... You know, certainly don't want to be thought I'm saying that these national allegiances are somehow natural and long-standing. I, the other thing I want to stress is they were, in many ways, in many parts of Europe, very rapidly improvised way uh, constructed. I think that was particularly the case in Turkey. I think, I think t- Turkish nationalism is an extremely modern ideological construction. But of course because it came to the top in a particular crystallisation and then was exercised by a government that unremittedly and increasingly elaborately presented that, it produced the sense that it's natural. And it, it, you know the, the trick of the, the national ideology is it isn't natural, but it can make itself feel natural, which, of course, to some extent makes it natural. We were just discussing, yeah. we were just discussing the last paragraph that Fred Halliday, the late Fred Halliday, uh, put in a... The, he disciplined himself until he got to the very last paragraph of a chapter he'd written for a book I'm editing, in which he said it is not the case that the world is divided into nations, but 99.9% of the world's population think it is the case. (laughs) (laughs) To which I said, doesn't that make it the case? (laughs) 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 Somebody
0: like Habermas at the moment has argued that you've got to move forward to a, uh, a political union in Europe and then People will eventually sort of form themselves around that in that way that it will appear to them the natural formation. And uh, I don't know any of that. I think we're going to let other people have a go at this point. So uh, we'll all look at this. Okay. Um, we'll start here.
4: in the United Kingdom states, um, would it be possible, as all the members of the UK are sort of regions, that are part of the EU, that process to be peaceful? And I do come from the Balkans and I do understand that there's a lot of violence involved in formation of new states, ultimately all these states will be a part of Europe. So do you think it's possible to actually form new states within what is
0: would like to take that they're
2: all are we taking one question at a time yeah, yeah. we will, we will. Yeah. I think providing it's not a very radical process I mean for example if you take the United Kingdom you, you could see certain circumstances in which a referendum might be held in Scotland which would lead to a vote for at least much greater autonomy effectively internal autonomy in all but name Um, and that that can be accommodated and in fact will be accommodated very well within the European Union set up but of course compared to the kind of transformations I was talking about historically that would be pretty small beer. I mean someone will probably go try and get his independence light third way through whereby Scotland is independent but the army remains a United Kingdom army and uh, the armed forces all remain um, UK type things. Well, there's an old-fashioned view of nation-state sovereignty that says you haven't got your own army, you aren't really sovereign, yeah. but it's difficult to see it ever coming that far. It's difficult to see any significant um, power being devolved upon peacefully upon a breakaway state. Thank you.
1: I, I think that um, membership of the European Union can encourage entities like Scotland to pursue independence more actively and make it easier for them to attain independence. And I would like to be extremely provocative and paradoxical and give you the example of the Republic of Ireland, which was in many ways dependent upon the United Kingdom until both countries joined the European community. And no doubt, I think the Republic of Ireland has become far more independent, has acquired a greater sense of own destiny, its own nationality as a result of the membership of the European community. And that same process could apply in a different form, but it would apply to Scotland, it would apply to, to, to Wales, it could, uh, could apply to many of the communities in uh, other European countries. So I think the answer is, I would say, firmly yes. Yeah. Good
2: a question, uh, an observation rather, which is um, that the uh, the, the legitimacy or the viability of a nation-state is dependent <coughs> on a number of factors necessary but not necessarily sufficient factors uh, like your views on this um, these are things like you know ethnic origin uh, ethnic commonality
5: religious commonality um, linguistic commonality culture
0: which can be broken down into sort of um, uh, know, anything from food to customs to history to clothing etc and the absence of these sort of factors one or, or more of these factors would almost invariably result in conflict and um, you know the, the, the destruction of that nation state uh, you know if you try to construct that nation state no that's so good. Th- there's a good point there about you know, the way against what you were saying John not, not entirely against it but, but there is a sense of a fa- of a real foundation of the nation there even if it's not natural, because it could be precisely cultural or political, um, but do, would that seem to you a, 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 a reasonable point that nations do build themselves around, as it were, pre-national configurations of some sort?
2: Well, I mean, two things. I mean, taking the long view of the historian, I, I don't I don't think that's the way things happen. I mean, in fact, cite, for example, what is often regarded as culturally one of the most homogenous, centralised nation-states of Europe, France. Um, I, I agree with Eugene Weber's classic study, Peasants into Frenchmen, that most Frenchmen didn't know they were Frenchmen until the Third Republic, in any very meaningful sense, and that cultural homogeneity is very much a construction of the mass society of the 20th century, um, and that it's constantly changing. And the second thing is, nationalism, of course, is a principle that links culture to politics. It's not just about there being different cultures, different modes of clothing and. and eating and language, but that this should be associated with a very hard form of political independence. It seems to be one of the things that makes the European Union work, particularly in its expanded form, is that many central European states have given up on the sovereignty notion. The sovereignty notion, I mean, way back in 1848, the Czech nationalist Palazzi said, if the Habsburg Empire did not exist, we would have to invent it, because a small nation will undoubtedly fall prey to larger nations on each side, so they felt they would eventually, Czechs would fall prey to German or Russian domination, and how pressing it was because they fell prey to both in the 20th century. So they'll yeah, keep the cultural diversity, but a lot of what we'd normally in the 20th century thought of as sovereign rights would be happily surrendered to a bigger centre. So in that sense, uh, you know, I, th- I think that era of nationalism was gone.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I would ju- just to, to bolster a point that, that John said, I mean, uh, in response to your question, I mean, I agree with everything he said, in any case, our views of nationalism are quite alike in, in general, but I mean, the existence of cultural communalities and, and all these things that you've counted is also not enough uh, to create a nation as well, or, you know, I mean, I happen to live in uh, for one, I'm in Sweden, and I mean, if you look at Scandinavia in general, and from the outside, we think of them, you know, as one unit, whatever, you know, same language, same belief systems, same whatever, everything that you counted, same. Then ask a Swede about the Dane. <laughs> what he thinks about Danes or Norwegians until they they discovered the oil. <laughs> uh, Where well, well, one here,
5: then one here, and then <coughs> values, so. Well, I recognize this is the forum for European philosophy, but I wonder whether we can bring in economics into this debate. Um, After all, the very project of European Economic Community or the European Union is based on the idea that economic prosperity will help European nationalisms and European nation states grow out of this, these rivalries. And I think it was really ultimately the basis for Turkey's membership in a greater Europe that it was premised on economic prosperity of greater Europe and Europe Turkey's membership was only possible in that larger context. Now my question to John or to others is, uh, Today, of course, this, today is a very difficult time to talk about this. But do you think this is a, this is in fact a, this was in fact an illusion, or should we say that we're living through uh, some short, medium-term difficulty, and that Europe will find a way to grow out of this e- these economic difficulties? Because I found you rather pessimistic, or I, I found. A rather pessimistic uh, uh, views per, and I'm wondering whether the economic dimension is making you
2: yeah. so <laughs> um, one of the people who most influenced my views of nationalism Ernie Skellner did think that there had to be a sense of belonging to very large communities in the modern world to make them work and the the one he would choose, but he would choose it on the principle, you know, like Voltaire would choose a god. Um, (laughs) uh, The one he would choose would be a world of prosperous nation-states with market economies and liberal democratic governments, because he believed that the sense of national community would keep them together, but sufficiently weakly, sufficiently without firm militant conviction that they would go around killing others in the name of that identity but it's very interesting that Gellner ended his life in Prague um, and having written about this natural growth of this benign national identity with non-antagonistic relationships between nation states as the economy like Topsy just grew he suddenly grew pessimistic after 1991 because he suddenly thought he could see the rise of a militant Nationalism in ex-communist and Europe. Now he was wrong about that, but I do think that you're right. If 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 the if the EU is an economically prosperous project, national identity will not be a poisonous thing. But if it's not, it might well be. And so you're the economic historian, (laughs) not not me. Um, uh, Is Is this present crisis just a little bump on the ever-winding, continued growth, or is it actually the end of that glorious era that I was once told 1948 or 49 was the best year to be born in Britain. I was about two years too early, but about the best, because we just went through this happy period, post-war, continuous growth, and I'm sorry for the younger people, but it just finished. <laughs>
0: I, may,
1: may I just say a word? I, I think if you're looking at the question whether the continuation of economic prosperity, which we may not see for some years, <laughs> one day will come back, um, if that is necessary to the development of um, the European Union and so to the um, impact on the nation states which make it up I think it's worth pointing out that actually um, from time to time a downturn and even an economic crisis uh, have been from time to time significant in accelerating the process of European uh, developments and uh, we only have to look at the events of the last few days where um, these events have resulted in the replacement of two prime ministers by um, two um, faceless Eurocrats uh, i'm not to have a call in myself by the way so uh, i do i not think i not think, think one can say that uh, these difficulties um, are really going to um, to affect um, the, the way in which the union develops in, in except in as they actually may lead to more more centralization it may not be a good thing more more powers in the economic field for the union
0: and so on I was thinking in that respect, John, that when you were emphasising the importance or significance of uh, wars and violence and disruption of that kind in the formation of the nation-states, whether those triggers could be equally economic as well as sort of ethno-political or something like that. Couldn't, couldn't there be other kinds of shocks which could produce these kinds of reconfigurations
2: I think they usually come with large scale violence.
4: Right. (laughs) Oh Oh, Oh, dear.
1: The line you, you have to have uniformity, and when you can allow a certain amount of diversity, that that in a sense is the whole problem, isn't it, for, for the European Union? And maybe maybe in Albany uh, I was drawing the line in a slightly more um, tolerant way than might have been expected in an area which which is after all regarded as part of economic law, but. Uh, I, I think that I would say that the tendency has been rather too much the other way in general. There has been too much insistence on um, uniformity, which is quite understandable when you look at the origins of the community. It started, of course, essentially as an area where you had to abolish tariffs and the like. And, of course, you had to have identical rules about what constituted um, a green gauge in order to make sure that the right amount of duty was paid when you extend that to whole areas of human experience and even to things like public services, it becomes very difficult. We need, we need there to recognise more diversity. It's the application of the original model, as it seems to me, which, which doesn't create difficulties, as will create increasing difficulties in the future in the light of Lisbon.
0: Can we just push push the uh, discussion back a moment to the the uniformity, homogeneity thing? Because the homogeneity thing, it always (laughs) seems to point towards something uh, one might feel profoundly uncomfortable with, some sort of um, uh, xenophobic urge or something like this for for some purity of the people, some absurd thing like this. But the idea of uniformity that you're talking about is a, a level of a complete abstraction from that at least in principle, in the sense that it doesn't matter who you're dealing with, their, their, their identities are, as it were, invisible before the law. Is, is mm-hmm. that how you see it? Mm-hmm. Well, that's how the law does operate.
1: Of course, you don't allow for different uh, solutions because different individuals are involved. You have to have a common view. And if you, you talk about purity, it reminds me of the problem of the purity of German beer, which is a very good example of an attempt to insist on something which is fundamental to the national culture. And the idea that you should be able to import into Germany beer which did not comply with the German beer purity law was a abhorrent. It was a, a flagrant invasion of the of the national culture. But nonetheless, um, the view was taken that German beer with its excellent policies could coexist with imported beers. People would be free to make their own their own choice. So that's that's the that is the kind of um, as I see it, that is the kind of contribution to civilization, actually, Europe can make, that it, that it is possible for cultures to interact, to allow them to
0: interact, to encourage them to interact. Thank
2: you. I, I just want...
0: Oh, sorry. You, uh, yes, you were... Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yes,
6: uh, on, on this question of homogeneity uh, versus diversity, uh, it may be useful to make a distinction between culture and ideology culture is a kind of process uh, which is quite fluid and continuous and one in, which has generated um, uh, a great deal of mixing of what's been called hybridity rather but particularly in europe and i hesitate to add that so many elements of this hybridity didn't come from europe at all but from <laughs> across the atlantic which is of course an issue for nationalism as well, especially <laughs> in France. Um, also from across the Mediterranean. Uh, across the Mediterranean, yes. But I'm talking more yeah, you yeah. Know, in the globalization context of more, more uh, recent times. And I think then it's ideology uh, which mythologizes culture and mythologizes identity, or what, the, what Raymond Williams in another context called uh, myth operating as memory. And this is what ideology does, in effect, that, you know, in the midst of this cultural flux, we, which includes elements from everywhere, and the continuing cultural process, ideology then insists on particular identities. But this is, I say ideology insists, but ideology itself is a field of contest. <coughs> so in fact, you know, when you look at the question of multiculturalism, of migration, and so on, in all the, at uh, least, Northwest European countries, it's highly contested part of the politics, and which side wins depends on the situation. It's particularly bad now, <laughs> but even, even when it is bad, uh, it, it still operates with what uh, Professor Jacobs has talked about, which is the, you know, the, the rule of law, citizenship, the, uh, you know, they are, uh, it's on the margin really. Which is of course very different in Turkey, Turkey is a different question altogether. Not just Turkey perhaps but what used to be called Turkey in Europe which includes Greece and the Balkans uh, in which um, you have it is the question ideological questions of homogeneity uh, are much more fundamental and much more active
0: okay good good, good. thank you very much I don't know if pick up on that ideology culture
3: distinction can I ask a, a question point? actually yeah. to uh, yeah. to yeah. Francis and Let's just assume that, you know, Turkey has completed, you know, whatever requirements there are, you know, it's a perfect rule of law, which it does, which, which is a myth at the moment, in any case. Uh, but let's just assume that this is the case. Then, uh, do you think that Turkey would be taken as part of the European Union? Would, would culture not interfere? Would it be just confined to the domain of ideology?
6: think it's, it's a very difficult question because uh, I think the Turkish nationalism is so ingrained and it has so much to do with the Kurds and the Kurdish issue uh, and any politician, including the current leaders who make any concessions to the Kurds are in danger of losing votes, simply because there is such strong national Nationalist sentiments and the insistence on uniformity. I was yeah. amused, to, uh, I think many of us were, who heard that uh, uh, Erdogan, Prime Minister, talking about the few Jews who were still in Turkey, referring to them as our honored
0: guests. <laughs> so they are <laughs> ge- they're not citizens, they are honored guests. <laughs> of so course, that
6: puts you in mind of all the other guests who are not honored throughout the 20th century. But you never talk about Kurds as guests. You can't talk about Kurds or (coughs) Alevis as guests. Because, you know, they are, in fact, they are the ones that you want to make into proper Sunni Turks. (laughs) And so that is where, I think, uh, you know, culture and ideology
0: and religion are mixed. (laughs) That was quite a sideways answer to your question yes I took the question to be in a
1: slightly different shape to be what would be the effect in relation to the European Union yeah. Yeah. the fact that Turkey was observing the rule of law I would I would hate to give you the impression that I think that all the existing member states of the European Union are <laughs> 100% <laughs> observant of the rule of law that is certainly not the case in any of the member states it certainly not the case in this particular member state where we are at <laughs> 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 the um, I think, I think that you have to have a minimum threshold, and I think that, I have to say this quite frankly, I think that um, in the case of some recent enlargements of the European mm-hmm. Union, that minimum threshold has not been observed, and there are mm-hmm. resulting difficulties from that, uh, as of course there were difficulties with the Russia being admitted to the Council of Europe, but that was a, a different, but not altogether, mm-hmm. n- all, not altogether different um, process. So, um, I think from the point of view of the European Union, I I also would not say, but this is a purely personal opinion, that simply compliance with the rule of law or greater compliance would be sufficient for Turkish um, accession Mm -hmm. to the European Union, because clearly there are other requirements which have to be met, and of course we now know that there's going to be a a certain amount of politics in the decision which is going to be affected, no doubt, by public opinion, by referenda, and all the
0: rest of it. Okay, just yes, uh, uh, speak nice and loud, so people.
1: Yes, yes,
2: yes. Oh, thank you. Um, if um, I just like to ask a question, particularly to Professor Oz um, um, um This is a difficult question. Um, is the is there a, is there a debate in Turkey today between the, o- the relationship of the Ottoman Empire with Armenia? Because um, a lot of the objections in Europe to um, Turkish membership of the um, EU relate to this question, this is often brought up in Europe, so just as Germany, for example, has had to address the question of the Jews, um, and and this relates to other countries as well, in terms of their own histories, um, other powerful countries, is there a debate today in Turkey about the relationship with Armenia? Question
3: about Ottoman yeah, I mean, it's not a difficult question, actually. Uh, well, first of all, the, the relationship of the Ottoman Empire and the the Armenians or the Armenian genocide is only one of the issues, uh, which is probably blocking whatever you know Turkey's relationship with the EU. You have the Kurdish question, you have the other. I mean, there are a lot of skeletons in the closet. Basically, it's not the only Armenians, and then you have current conjecture problems like Cyprus, uh, blocking everything, and then you have Sarkozy and Merkel. You know. Different factors. Uh, so you can go on, uh, but as uh, when it comes to the concrete question, is there a debate? There has been a debate, and it can't. I mean, it started. I mean, it, it actually became much more. Uh, um, I think you know, progressive since 2005, and when there was a conference on actually the Ottoman Armenians, where many Turkish <coughs> scholars and I used. Turkish, not because you know I care about nationality, but you know it matters politically that they say that it was a genocide. There are still many people who claim the same today. In fact, one of them, Taner Akcam, recently got a European, human, uh, uh, right, right of com- um, European Court of Human Rights decision condemning, uh, just you know, w- there, without there being a case against the, f- the, uh, the 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 penal code 301, which is you know, which is which was used in the past. Uh, which we, the, the 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 particular clause was about insulting Turkish and obviously when you say that there was a genocide you were prosecuted by that. And he got a decision from the European court that this clause is not valid, I mean it can't be used anymore, which is not used in practice anyway. Now, uh, so there is a debate on all these issues. There are a number of people who claim and write that there was a genocide. But if you're asking about the social pressures on these people or political pressures, then of course. I mean, you know, there are some changes. But then, you know, it brings us back to the whole issue of authoritarian tendencies in today's Turkey. And I think, you know, I mean, if I go and say that there was a genocide, I don't know what will happen to me. I don't think, you know. But yeah, anyway.
0: Okay, I think we've got time for one more.
2: say, therefore, there is a relationship between Turkey and, and Europe. Um, now, with all your knowledge, I'm sure you will know better than I that, uh, I pose the question, weren't there any other nation-states formed in the world at that time? I can imagine at the end of colonialism that many nation-states were formed at other parts of the world that are not part of Europe or, uh, or considered. Well, there weren't actually many formed at that time because the winners in the First World War made sure they weren't. The, the winners were utterly hypocritical. They imposed the national self-determination rule on the defeated powers, but as Ho Chi Minh, who was at Versailles, pointed out, as people from Ireland pointed out, they weren't applied to French or British Imperial possessions. Indeed, Britain and France expanded its imperial powers as a consequence of the First World War. It's the second shattering wave after the Second World War that you have to look to to see, if you like, the non-European expansion of the world of nation-states, um, where we when we get the waves in in, in uh, South Asia, India and Indonesia, mainly after the war, then in the fifties in parts of the Middle East, and then. In the 60s, in sub-Saharan Africa, so the process of nation-state formation hasn't got anything to do actually with the, with with with, with you know, the power of nationalism. It's to do with the particular geopolitical circumstances in which states have have, have been shattered. Um, one thing I did want to stress, I mean, the, the point about the distinction between culture and ideology. The thing I find ironic about nationalism is that the more it insists on its distinctiveness, the more it looks like the other nationalisms are insisting (laughs) on their distinctiveness. There was a fascinating exhibition at the Royal Academy some years ago. Turkey...
3: uh,
2: How many uh, thousand
3: years was it? A thousand years.
2: A thousand years of Turkish history. And the preface to the catalogue was signed by Erdogan and Tony Blair. Um, And so clearly it was partly a political... um, thing I mean I was very glad of it because it allowed some wonderful stuff to come out of Turkey that except for the political motivation possibly would have never been shown in London including some quite obscene drawings that were very enjoyable <laughs> <laughs> although I'm told there's even more obscene drawings back <laughs> in Istanbul that uh, I want to get access to but, <laughs> but the interesting thing I've is <laughs> but the interesting thing is that it depicted the history of the Turks as starting in China and in many ways, it almost seemed to insist on the non europeanness of Turks. And you think, well, what's Blair and Erdogan, who, um, of course, Blair was a great exponent of um, Turkey's membership the EU, what are they doing insisting on the Asianness of Turks? Well, of course, what they're actually insisting on is that the Turks have a long national history, just like the British or the French, which is equally mythical. But of course, in order to have that long history, they had to move it geographically somewhat until finally it ended up by this <laughs> process of, you know, so, so many miles a day, the Turks walked <laughs> westwards until they ended up in Anatolia and formed Turkey. Um, <laughs> it I mean, it that's... Be, it couldn't have begun in London. It would have been very different. Without it?
6: The China, they'd be the Greeks, wouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but the thing
2: that struck me there was that, that, you know, the ideology has got nothing to do with the reality... Of, of the culture. The the ability to say you're, you're, you're a nation has got nothing to do with <coughs> actually where you're really from. That's to do with state reformation at moments of violence, I think.
0: Now, some insatiable quests for homogeneity may be better than others, because what I'd like you all to do now <laughs> is thank all our speakers.